All right, I know what I said. I know that last week in our Easter talk, I said that this week we would be back looking at the Gospel of John. I know, and I'm sorry. If you came specifically for that, I'm about to let you down. Sort of, sort of. The more that I was looking at John chapter 17, this is the the high priestly prayer of Jesus or the farewell prayer of Jesus. It's rich, it's, it's theologically dense, and it is worth our consideration. But here's the deal. I don't know if it was just me or what, but the more I was wrestling with the text and some of the potential take home for us from it, it just seemed sort of disconnected from what a lot of us, I think, are are going through. Um, I know that for many of us, this is uh, more of an inconvenience, maybe, but I think that others have a lot of real stuff on their plates, responsibilities, financial concerns, anxiety, worries, those sorts of things. And while it's great to think about Jesus praying for us as he gets to in the, the latter portion of that prayer, it just seemed to me that it might still be time for us to kind of put that off to the side. Now, here's what I'm going to do, though. Uh, I'm going to talk about the Psalms uh, in this video. And what I want to do with John is I want to pick that up uh, because we've spent a lot of time in the book and I don't want it just to sit there and then us to come back to it in two or three or four months. So my plan is, and I've already let you down once, but my plan is I'm still going to talk about John just in a separate video. I think instead of doing one of our daily ish Bible studies, I'm going to do something more akin to a sermon. And we'll look at Jesus's prayer in John chapter 17. Uh, but tonight, while we're all here, while, while we are all in the same room, I wanted us to consider a psalm. Now, this is Psalm 13. And I know that it's, it's a bit heavy. It's a bit intense. This is a lament psalm, as we will see here in a moment. And it might not fit where everybody is, but I think that we can wrestle with it, and I think that there's some application for us. So I'm going to read you Psalm 13, and then we'll kind of unpack it a bit. This is Psalm 13. I'm going to be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, uh, and the words will probably be up on your screen. It says, To the leader, a psalm of David, How long, O Lord? The Hebrew there is Ad Anah. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And here in these first two verses, the, the psalmist has their plea, and the plea is going to move to a time of petition. The, the situation has been announced, and now the psalmist is going to begin making requests. These are actually imperatives. In verse 3, it says, consider and answer me. Actually, in the Hebrew, there is no conjunction. It's consider, answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemies will say, I have prevailed. My foes will rejoice because I am shaken. So we have in the first two verses, the psalmist's plea, and then it moves to this time of petition. Uh, Consider, answer me, give light to my eyes. And then there's one more shift in the psalm. 
uh, beginning in verse 5. And if you're tracking with what the psalmist is saying, it's an odd shift. Because uh, we go from how long to answer me, consider me, give light to verse 5. But I, I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The word of God for the people of God. Now, if we can get nerdy here for just a second, uh, Hermann Gunkel calls this psalm, Psalm 13, the parade example of the lament psalms. It's like Pearl Jam is the parade example of grunge music emerging out of Seattle. Like Cal Ripken Jr. is the parade example of a shortstop in the majors. Like Harry Potter is the parade example of young adult fantasy. It might even be the parade example of young adult fiction. It might even be the parade example of all of fiction for all of time. Finally, and this is where I'm going to get controversial. It's like Popeye's spicy chicken sandwich is the parade example of all spicy chicken sandwiches. You know what you're expecting when you get a spicy chicken sandwich. You want the bread to be nice and luscious. Yeah, I said it. I said luscious. You want it to be nice and luscious. You want your breading on the chicken to be, to be light and airy and crispy. And you want the spice to be right with you. You want some pickles and lettuce. And you want all of the things that you want. And Popeye's absolutely crushes the competition. Okay, now, th these are all pretty subjective. I know that some of my Chick-fil-A folks are throwing stuff at the screen and you're raging and you're wanting to protest and, and raise your own lament, perhaps. But hold off for, for a moment here. These categories, uh, or at least the descriptions of, of how I'm, I'm laying them out, they're subjective. And certainly, when I say Cal Ripken is the best shortstop, I know that there's going to be some, some pushback there. You're wrong, but there'll be some, some pushback. In each of these examples, there's an expectation of what say, a grunge band is, or what a shortstop is and should be, what young adult fantasy consists of, and what spicy chicken sandwiches are like. There's categories that we're working with to determine what the parade example is. And this is where Hermann Gunkel comes into play. And all my early 20th century nerds that love German historical, critical, biblical scholarship, you're going to just start going nuts because Hermann Gunkel is known, at least according to some scholars, uh, as one who has contributed most significantly and illuminatingly to our understanding of the records of the Old Testament. And Hermann Gunkel stands as one who is inscribed indelibly among that list of people. When he was studying uh, the Psalms, he made two main advances. One is identifying the type or the genre of the Psalms. And actually, he was influenced here by the Brothers Grimm, who had looked at uh, these folk tales and, and categorized them. And Gunkel is doing this with the Psalms. He's looking at how each one sort of moves from the beginning to the end and what are its component parts and seeing what makes a good shortstop, if you will. Only he was looking at poems and he was looking at praise psalms and laments and thanksgivings. And he began to say, now this is what a lament psalm does. I've looked at all of the records, I've compared all the stuff, and this is how they usually act. 
Now, Gunkel, when he was classifying the Psalms, he came up with three, count them, three important genres. These are the main genres in the Psalms. They are the Psalms of praise or the hymns. Uh, Brueggemann would call these the Psalms of orientation, the, the, the core testimony of Israel's faith. And then we have the lament psalms or the complaint psalms or the petitionary psalms where something is happening. Something uh, maybe in the praise psalms or the hymns, it's not going right. Uh, and the psalmist is complaining or petitioning or saying, God, you need to do something here because everything that we know is being called into question. This is why Brueggemann refers to these as the psalms of disorientation. And then finally, we have the Thanksgiving Psalms, which move from a point of lament, and they move into God has now answered the prayer, and everything is okay, and we need to give thanks, and we need to uh, inspire other people to tell their stories too, which is why Brueggemann refers to these as the Psalms of reorientation. So Brueggemann is classifying all of these Psalms, and he's saying that they act in a certain way. And according to Gunkel, Psalm 13, it was the parade example of the lament Psalms because it moves from the plea in verses 1 and 2 to the petition, to the answer me, to the, to the look upon me, to the uh, give light to my eyes, to finally trust and praise in verses 5 and 6. So there's a movement from the how long, O Lord, to the do something, O Lord, to the but I will trust you, O Lord. Now, some other scholars have said that if you're going to approach Psalm 13, and this is why I wanted to talk about it with you tonight, that there's also this pause between the plea and the petition, the, the how long and the do something, and then there's this pause that gets the psalmist to a place where they can say, but I will trust in your steadfast love. Walter Brueggemann and Bill Bellinger actually refer to this as the strange freighted gap upon which the entire psalm turns. What happens in between verse four and verse five that allows the psalmist to say, I will trust you. For some commentators, they say that there must have been something biographical that happened in the, in the life of the, the psalm singer to go from, this is terrible, do something to, I'm going to trust you. They say that maybe there was a healing that was involved. Maybe there was some sort of change of circumstance in the life of the psalmist. Maybe something actually took place that allowed them to get to this uh, statement of, of faith and trust. Or maybe others have, have reasoned it's, it's liturgical, meaning it's something that happens in the church. Like you say these things and it's kind of programmed and then a priest will whisper something into your ear and then you'll be okay and you'll say, I'm going to trust because something uh, within a, a worship setting has happened. You've said these things and then someone has responded by saying, it'll be okay or don't forget this stuff or, you know, uh, God's still with you. And then you move to this place of, of trust. But really, the best that we have as we're looking at Psalm 13, the most that we can say about it is it's, it's literary. It just moves. It's, it's rhetorical. This is what lament psalms do. They move from plea to petition to praise. And I want us to consider in this moment together, I want us to consider the pause in the psalm, because I think that we find ourselves in this place, right? 
And maybe this is, this is a reach. I, I mean, our lives, they're quite literally paused at the moment. Many of us were, were homebound. We are not able to go out unless it's deemed essential. Um, we, we are quarantined. We're, we're not able to do the things that we were doing six or eight weeks ago. Our lives are very literally pause. Now, some of you, I know you're still going out to work and, and a lot of your routines are the same, but the world around you is, is much different now. And there's a, a, a way that we can think about this psalm just from that standpoint of we're in this strange freighted moment of pause and what are we to do now? How are we to respond now? I also want to free us up a little bit to consider this pause in the psalm, this move from verse 4 to verse 5, this move from the how long and the do something to the I will trust you. And I want us to consider where we are in that movement. And I want us also to feel freedom to not limit our feelings, to not limit our plight, to not limit our responsibilities and obligations and, and our burdens. For example, I know that for, for many of us, you might say like, this is really hard and I feel really anxious about this and I have a lot of concerns and worries and, and cares about all of this, but I also know that it's worse for so-and-so or it's worse for such-and-such. I love that. I love the fact that we're able to think outside of our own sphere and remember that there are other people that are dealing with death in the family. There are other people that are dealing with uh, maybe family members who are working as a, as a medical professional in this time. We've got other people that are dealing with, with real financial hardships. And, and for some of us, we can think outside of our relatively comfortable but sort of inconvenienced frame of reference and say, I've got this thing, but I know that it's not as bad as so-and-so or, or such-and-such. That's, that's good, but I also want us to, to free ourselves up a little bit to, to be able to sit where we are and to mourn what we are mourning and to, to grieve and to lament and figure out if we can make that transition from how long do something but I. Because the Psalms, if nothing else, they're invitations for us to enter into the prayers. They're invitations for us to... Uh, become the I of the psalm. When the psalmist is saying, I this and I that, it's an invitation because it's ambiguous for us to enter in and to become the I that is struggling, to become the one that says, how long will you forget me forever? To become the one that says, but I will trust. It's an invitation for us to enter in for ourselves. I will also say it's an invitation for us if our, our lives aren't really in that, that how long sort of setting. It's an invitation for us to take that on for others. To pray how long on behalf of our neighbor. To pray how long on behalf of our family members. To pray how long on behalf of some of the people in our community who are really struggling. So the plan for this talk is pretty straightforward and actually it won't really give you many surprises. I'm gonna just march us through the Psalm. We're gonna look at some of the stuff and then hopefully we'll arrive at a point of conclusion. So I want us to consider each of these three phases of the Psalm, the plea, the petition, and then the move to trust or prayer and see how we can find ourselves in it. So if you would, let's look at the first couple of verses of this psalm together. The psalmist begins, How long, O Lord, ad ana, 
How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul? Actually, that that translation is a little bit strange. Some people have uh, proposed that it's better translated, how long shall I cast about for counsel? Or how long am I to lay up plans in my spirit? It might not be a pain word there, but it might be something more about the things that we are planning uh, to do and really have no recourse to do in this situation. How long should I cast about or look for counsel? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? In his classic work, The Art of Biblical Poetry, Robert Alter points out that each of these how longs, there's four of them, and they reflect an ascent on the scale of intensity. They note the the desperate urgency that is pitched slightly higher with each repetition. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Will you uh, not acknowledge me? Will you uh, not have remembrance of me? And then it moves to, will you hide? Will you actively turn yourself from me? So it's not just a forgetting, then it becomes a a hiding, and then it's uh, moving on to the anxiety of the psalmist. How long must I bear this pain, or how long must I look for counsel or for the right moves? How long do I have sorrow in in my heart? This, this inner anxiety that I think a, a good many of us can, can relate to, whether it's anxiety for our own situations or the situations of those around us. So we're moving from God just forgetting, which the psalmist knows is not the case, but moving from forgetting to hiding, actively turning from the psalmist to their own anxiety in their lives to the fact that this is a life-threatening situation. How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? They move from this potential problem to a life-threatening, dangerous situation. Uh, Clinton McCann says, It has traditionally been suggested on the basis of these two verses that the psalmist was seriously ill or facing imminent death. And a related notion is that the enemy in in verse 2, it should be understood as death. Then he makes this turn. Uh, These proposals, they make some sense, but the precise nature of the problem and the identity of the enemy are by no means certain, he says. It's more likely that the language and imagery are intended to be stereotypical and open-ended which is why the Psalms are so great. And this is why the Psalms are so good for us right now, because they make room for us to feel all of the feelings that we have and to find some rooting in the biblical text that those feelings have been felt before. We are not the first ones to be anxious. We are not the first ones to be worried. We are not the first ones to have enemies, whether real or figurative, surrounding us, and we are not the first ones to say, Ad Anna, how long will this continue? The psalmist moves from their, their plea to the petition. In verse 3, it says, Consider, answer. It moves very quickly in these imperatives where the psalmist is calling God to task. Uh, probably a better way to um, interpret that first word there, the consider, is, is look. Look at me. Don't hide your face from me anymore. Look at me. Give attention to me. Stop hiding from me. Answer me. And then the psalmist moves and says, Give light to my eyes, which is code for strengthen me, uh, rejuvenate me, allow me to be okay in this moment, or I'm going to sleep the sleep of death. Literally in the Hebrew, it's, or I will sleep death. 
There is no the sleep of. It's just I will sleep death. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. And if, if nothing takes place here, I'm going to die. And then the psalmist makes another turn. I know I keep using this word, but it's, it's happening. It's moving from protect me, do something to help me, intervene on my behalf to actually, God, it's not even just about me. If you don't do anything here, uh, you're on the hook. Because if you don't do anything, my enemies are going to say, I prevailed. My enemies are going to say, this person's God is worthless. My enemies are going to, to think that you're nothing. So the psalmist is pretty, pretty brilliant in how they're looking at their circumstances. It's protect me, and if you don't, uh, it's going to make you look bad too. Lest, he says, my foes rejoice when I am shaken. God, it's not just about me and my situation. It's about you too, so do something. I know for many of us, like the way that this language is working, like we feel real uncomfortable about talking to God in that sort of open way, but it's here. It's, it's in the text. And what we can gain from that is a sense of, of freedom in our honest dialogue with God. Now, I, I will pause and say sometimes our honest dialogue is reflecting our own bad theology, where we're expecting God to do things that maybe God isn't uh, intending to do or um, is able to do. But here we have the, the, the psalmist saying, this, this matters for you too, God. It's not just about me. It's about your honor and your name. Now, the Psalms, they've been used like this a lot where uh, folks will look back to the things that God is doing or has done in the midst of their own situations that are catastrophic. For example, in Psalm 114, the psalmist probably finds himself in a moment of exile. They have been removed from the land. The temple has been decimated and destroyed. The temple is symbolic of the presence of God, and now they find themselves uh, in a foreign land with their religious system completely upended. And the psalmist says, remember the stuff that you did in the Exodus. Remember the stuff that you did at creation. Be that God again. This is a nerd note here, okay? But the Midrash of Psalm 13. Now this is like later Jewish commentary on Psalm 13. This, this reading in to how the psalm was used and what its purposes were. The Midrash of Psalm 13, it imagines Israel asking this how long questions in the context of the oppression by Babylon in the 6th century, by Persia a little bit later on in the 6th century, by Greece uh, in that intertestamental period, and then by Rome uh, even into the 1st century CE. So it's looking at this psalm being used over and over and over in the life of Israel when they face big difficulties. And it's freeing them up to say, how long? How long will this go on? So we have the plea and then we have the petition and then there's this moment of pause. And as we consider it, we're wondering which way we're going to go. I think for many of us, we're able to sort of rage at God and then 
wonder if we can come back and say, I'm going to trust you in the midst of this. In the psalm, the, the author says, but I. This is a, a strong contrastive in the poem. All this stuff has happened previously. This is all the stuff I'm feeling and wrestling with. But, but I, for reasons really unknown to us at this point, but I, I trusted in your steadfast love. This isn't just an act in the past. The way that trust is, uh, is written about in the Hebrew here, it's this, uh, it has this continual uh, sort of meaning in the present. I, I trusted and I will trust and I am trusting. It, and it's also, it's a deliberate act. It's not always something that just happens naturally. We, we choose to trust or we choose not to trust. The psalmist does go on to say, I trusted in your steadfast love, in your chesed. I keep coming back to this word because it's all throughout the Psalms and and really that's what they're basing their entire belief system upon, the fact that God is committed and that God is faithful and that God will continue to be involved in the lives of God's people. This is the basis of trust even when it seems like God is absent and hiding. The psalmist says, I, I, I will deliberately put my trust in you because of the things that I know that you have done. My heart, it will rejoice in your salvation, in the deliverance that will certainly occur. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, why this turn? What, what happened here in the life of the psalmist? We've said like there, there, there is no biographical note. There is no uh, side note. I was healed in between, you know, verses, my, my problems in verses one through four and then in five and six. There's something, something cool happened. God showed up. That, that's not how it works. There, there's no liturgical notes here that said, this is the thing that you say and then the priest will give you a blessing and say, it'll be all okay. And then you'll say, I'm going to trust. It's not like this, this routine thing. In, in the psalm, it, this move from plea to praise, it's, it's theologically motivated. It's the chesed of God. The trust is based on who, who God is, who, who the psalmist believes God is, and who the psalmist believes God has been in the past, and who the psalmist believes God will be in the future. It's based on the character of God and the fact that God is consistently and continually involved in the lives of God's people, even in our most difficult moments. Brueggemann and Bellinger write this. They say, Israel prays and hopes and demands because it trusts completely that Yahweh's steadfast love will prevail over every threat of death, darkness, and instability. It is the case that the trust so evident in the conclusion was in fact the same trust that permitted the lament in the first place. In other words, they're saying to trust in Yahweh, to trust in God, for us to trust in Jesus Christ allows us to open this honest dialogue, to to bring the divine into our sense of struggle and our anxiety and to be able to lay our plea and petition at God's feet. And our movement from plea and petition to trust, it's not necessarily based on a change in our situation. In the psalm, that doesn't 
happen. I also want to make this clear. It's not necessarily a change in our disposition. I don't want us to feel as though we have to set aside our anxiety and our worry and then become the stereotypical smiley Christian. I'm going to trust and everything's great. Don't mind me as my life is unraveling. I don't want us to, to fake it. Because this psalm isn't saying we have to change our disposition. In fact, I think you could read verses 5 and 6 as, oh, this might be a stretch, but I think that, but I will trust you. It's almost like it's through gritted teeth, like, okay, I'm going to trust you. I've got some stuff to base it on, but whatever. It's, it's a change in the psalmist's orientation. Uh, their, their deliberate act of trusting in the midst of their circumstance. It's, it's a change in their remembrance of God's activities and God's acts of commitment and faithfulness that have happened in their lives. It's, it's, a, it's a change in their active remembrance of God's continual involvement. You have not been alone. You will not be alone. There is no separation. It's also a change in their source of, of hope. And here this might even mean a change in the source of um, God's going to supernaturally intervene and take away the coronavirus to it's a change in the source of our hope that we are the people of God with the spirit of the living Christ indwelling in us. And we can contribute to the well-being of those around us. It's not as though we shake our fists and we wait for God to to rend the heavens and come down, as it were. That's already happened. We we say, God, uh, be involved, be invested, and also show us how we can contribute to your work here and now. It's, It's a call for the psalmist and a call for us to the deliberate and ongoing act of trust. It is not passive. It is something that we can choose to engage in. So here we are in this strange freighted gap between our plea and our petition and what could be our trust. And we find ourselves here in the pause as our lives are on hold and we don't exactly know what it is that will happen next. Each day seems to have surprises for us to consider and to to deal with. And I think that in that pause, the question for us to consider as we look at this psalm, this parade example of lament and and petition, some things for us to consider in, in, in response to that would be, how will we respond? What will our orientation be? What will our trust be placed in? Who will we intercede for? What acts of justice will we be called to? And what acts of justice are we being called to now? What role will we play in the comforting of our friends and our family and our neighbors? How can we be the hands and feet of Jesus in this moment. This situation, it's, it's odd. Uh, it's unprecedented. And many of us are, are grappling with what is it demanding of us? 
I want to conclude just by allowing us to have space. Um, I've said in the past, and I'm going to continue to say this, I don't want to rush the process for us. Because for many of us, we're, we're not ready necessarily to leave this moment of pause and verbalize or even hold on to trust yet. I'm hopeful that our understanding of God and who God is and what God has gifted us in the life of his son Jesus and what Jesus has modeled for us in his suffering and in his grief and in his own experience of abandonment crying out my God my God why have you forsaken me hopefully these things can allow us to say maybe even through gritted teeth I will trust I will sing I will hope that you will deal bountifully with me and those for whom I am interceding I know that this is a a weird time but I do hope that we can find ways to allow ourselves both the space for honest reflection and hold out hope for our own utterances of trust. <laughs>